From the studios of KWAM in Memphis, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we look at some of the issues that face young women when they enter the ordained ministry, issues of acceptance and professionalism, and even what shoes to wear with that robe. Our guest, Stacy Smith, tells us about some of the joys and the panic attacks that await those new women pastors. Later in the hour, Katie Scroggin brings us a review of the book Islamophobia, the Ideological Campaign Against Muslims by Stephen Sheehy. Stay tuned. Women's ordination is an issue that divides many Christians. The Catholics and Orthodox are officially opposed to the practice. Presbyterians and Baptists are mixed in their response, with some congregations that exclude and others that embrace the ordination of women. Some major churches, such as the Episcopalians, have fully accepted women into the clergy of the church, even up to the highest levels of leadership. Even in those congregations and denominations that are more accepting of the ordination of women, however, There still exist barriers and resistance, and these difficulties often play out in subtle and sometimes not-so-subtle ways. Our guest today, the Rev. Stacy Smith, is a graduate of Union Theological Seminary in New York, and she's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. Along with Ashley Ann Masters, Smith is the co-author of Bless Her Heart, Life as a Young Clergywoman, published last year by Chalice Press. The book addresses the unique issues that face young women as they enter the ministry. In addition to her role as a pastor, Stacy Smith also currently serves as the supervisor for Christian formation and wellness at the Church Health Center here in Memphis. Stacy Smith, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks. Thanks for having me. To start us off, I've asked you to read a short passage from your book, Bless Her Heart, Life as a Young Clergywoman. Sure. This is an excerpt from the second chapter, which is on establishing pastoral identity. It is uh, titled, I Know You Are, But What Am I? Just when we think we might have gotten some traction on finding out who we are as young women, we tack on the pressures of ordained ministry. With that, all of these becoming questions have an additional layer of stress spread out across them. If you were struggling with the pressures of relationship before, how much are these struggles heightened by a congregation that expects you to get married but not to date? Or one that wants you to live in the neighborhood when you clearly can't afford it? Establishing our individual identities is a lifelong process, yet as women, we know that there are certain biological, social, and economic factors that require us to move along. When we add pastor to the list of identities, we can feel lost and confused, while at the same time trying to provide comfort, guidance, and peace to a community of faith. When we say young clergy women, what do we mean? Are we young first, clergy second, and women third? Are we some Trinitarian version of all three, each of us independent and yet each entirely the whole? Are we required to put parts of ourselves on the shelf in certain situations? Or can we be all that we are without trying to be all things to all people? Establishing pastoral identity is not just about growing into our authority in the pulpit. Our pastoral identities are wrapped up in our careers, joys, vision, femininity, sexuality, maternity, morality, and humanity. What does it mean to be young and clergy and a woman? And that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. Those questions that you've brought up in this book about 
what it means to be those three things in combination mm -hmm. and trying to find an identity as not only a young person starting out on a new career, but also as a person with great responsibility who suddenly has to shepherd a congregation and take care of not only births and life courses, but also deaths and major transitions. So you co-wrote this book with Ashley Ann Masters, who also is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. And you both knew each other from seminary, or how did you come to meet Ashley Ann Masters? Ashley Ann and I met when we were um, both working at Second Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. I was doing, I was uh, just out of seminary, I'd graduated from Union in New York, and I was doing a two-year residency there for new pastors, and Ashley Ann was there as the interim pastor for children and families. Um, by being there together, we got to sharing stories and talking and um, got to be friends there, and uh, the the book came out of really just, you know, late nights sharing what was going on, both the good and the bad and the frustrating and the, the glorious, really. So this process of, of coming up with the idea of, of the book, um, you say late nights and, and conversations, but... I've had a lot of late-night conversations that haven't resulted in published books. So, so how did it move from those late-night conversations to, uh, to actually um, getting a publisher and moving into print? Well, that came through the Young Clergy Women Project. Mm -hmm. And this is an organization, a network really of you know, several hundred pastors now uh, all over different countries and different denominations. It started in 2006 mm -hmm. as sort of an informal network for young clergy women. Um, and evolved throughout the the last few years. They started an online magazine called Fidelia's Sisters that I started writing for uh, right when I moved to Indianapolis and was first serving in the church. And that was very cathartic. Um, I don't know how great a writing it was, but it was wonderful to be able to share what was going on um, in your ministry and put it out there for other people to read and comment on and identify with and challenge you on. And, and the young clergy women uh, put out a call for proposals. They had um, partnered with Chalice Press mm -hmm. to publish uh, books by and about and for young clergy women. So we, we brainstormed a couple of ideas, floated them past some other friends. Uh, this one seemed the, the most likely topic because it seemed to be an extension of what was sort of going on online already. Mm -hmm. um, but we really wanted to add the kind of scriptural component to it as well um, so that we, were, we weren't just sharing stories, um, but we're kind of reading our own narratives through, as Christians, sort of the ultimate narrative in scripture. And so we wrote the proposal. I think we got it in late, like 2 a.m. when it was due, I think by midnight. And another late night conversation. Another late night conversation. I think that, oh my God, I think we had to go to Kinko's and print it out and the email didn't work and, you know, all of those technology things. Um, so that was in April. And then right around the 4th of July, we, we found out that we were going to be the first book published in this series, in this collaboration between Young Clergywomen and Chalice Press. So. Well, congratulations on being Thank the first. Thank you. Thank you. Now, a significant portion of Bless Her Heart is made up of stories you collected from women who are themselves also going through the struggles that you write about. 
was it difficult to get these women to open up about their experiences, or did you find that they were very eager to do it? No, not at not hard at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of these, when we when we decided on the chapters, we had some of these stories kind of in mind, just from friends or colleagues, things that we had heard, and that's really how we chose the chapters themselves. They were based on these late night conversations we'd already been having, um, because we wanted to to pick chapters that or pick topics that we thought were both unique to this group of, of pastors, of women, um, but at the same time sort of universal themes that we think a lot of people go through. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, we, um, we don't directly address, for example, gays and lesbians in the church. Um, however, we address dating in the church. Whoever you're dating, it's can be difficult, right? Difficult for different reasons. And so we sort of went to this kind of broad list of issues that we wanted to talk about, um, which came out of the stories that we had heard. Um, and then as we sort of developed the topics, there were a couple of things where we said, well, we really need a story about this, or we really want to get someone's opinion about this particular issue. So we would go back to folks um, and sort of ask them, to share their experiences around this particular topic. And it was, it was very easy to get a broad range of people because um, Ashley Ann went to Columbia Seminary in Atlanta, um, so she knew a lot of folks who were serving churches. Um, as a student at Union, there were less of my colleagues who were serving churches, but from a much more diverse uh, background and lots of different denominations and everything. So we've got um, stories from women in, I think, seven or eight different denominations mm-hmm. um, serving in a variety of ministries internationally, you know, in the United States, different things like that. Now, you mentioned that you were doing these articles about mm-hmm. your experiences as a young clergywoman. Did a lot of that material make it into the book, or, or was that more a jumping-off point for fresh material in the book? It, none of that material directly is in the book. Uh, one, one of the first, uh, when we were kind of brainstorming chapters, obviously one of the first ones that we talked about was, uh, and the first chapter is, is called Pedicures for the Pastor, and it's about shoes. <laughs> and then there's another chapter later on that's on clergy attire. And so um, that's, I think, for women and for men, um, it's putting on the robe for the first time is uh, is a can be exciting and challenging and strange. And so the first piece that I wrote for Fidelia's sisters was called "I Do Not Own a Robe," and about my struggles to uh, to adopt this garment that I had to wear. Um, and so that that theme certainly makes it into the book, but none of the actual material that was published online is in the book. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Stacy Smith, and she's the author of Bless Her Heart, Life as a Young Clergywoman. If you're interested in the book or if you'd like more information about Stacy or more information about these issues, visit us online at thingsnotseenradio.com. Has the reaction to the book, Bless Her Heart, been positive? It has, yeah. Um, it's it's been it's been great. Uh, I'm sh- I, I sort of expected a little more, uh, uh, you know, um, pointed reactions or something. People questioning this or that. It hasn't really happened yet. Although it kind of is starting to because it's been out there for a while. People are um, are starting to critique it a little bit more. But um, but it's been really positive. I think um, the the most exciting thing is are the the people who say, yeah, that's totally me. Um, and, and I've never seen it said 
like this all together. I've never had a, a you know, a, I've never seen anything in print that says, this is what my life is like. These are the things that I'm dealing with. Um, and that's really, I think, the best affirmation that, um, that it is something that's, that is speaking to a community of both very powerful and yet at sometimes very vulnerable women who need colleagues, who need support, who need to see their experience expressed in some kind of tangible form and can now give something to their pastoral colleagues or to their congregation. You know, one of the things that has been uh, most fun to watch uh, is the men in ministry, particularly like the, the older male pastors who have read it and are just kind of had their eyes open to things that they didn't just didn't even think about, didn't even know about. You know, my own pastor at my church uh, came in after he read it and said, I really think we need to convene a panel and talk about this and discuss this with the other pastors. because I'm really concerned that I've been, you know, a part of this, this problem for a long time. But I think he, he was really surprised to, to learn about some things that he had never thought about or never experienced, didn't really know that women in ministry were dealing with. And so he really um, wanted to, to make sure that, I don't know, in some ways he atoned for <laughs> not knowing this for a long time or something. So one of the reviews that we got on the book that I thought was most touching was from a cooperative Baptist pastor who was sort of challenging, uh, lifting up the role of women in ministry um, up and against other Baptist traditions that don't allow women into into ordained ministry. And uh, I just thought that was a really um, wonderful challenge. It's not something that we address directly in the book, the question of whether or not women should be ordained and why they haven't been. Um, but it is sort of, I think, the implicit goal, you know, to nudge this question along and to call attention to um, to the issues that other women who are called into ordained ministry and yet can't serve in the traditions that they're a part of. Well, and this is something that I actually wanted to ask you about, and I'm glad that you've raised this, because I did notice as I read the book that there was this elephant in the room mm -hmm. about the fact that not every Christian tradition mm -hmm. accepts and affirms the gifts mm -hmm. of women in ministry. Mm -hmm. And you and your co-author, Ashley Ann, touch on it a little bit in the book, but you don't really engage that issue head on. Mm -mm. And the the continued resistance of many religious traditions and denominations uh, to women in ordained ministry uh, is, a, is a struggle, not, sure. only, not only among between denominations, but within denominations themselves, as you've just said. But in making the decision about how to structure the book, why did you choose to leave this issue in the margins mm -hmm. instead of addressing it directly? Again, we, we wanted to, you know, I, I remember um, kind of having this great idea that we should, uh, one chapter we should add uh, to the book was, was on this issue, on women who, um, who want to be ordained, um, who are called into ordination and yet can't be. And, um, and I, I said to Ashley Ann, I was like, we need to address this issue. This is a great topic. We've got so many good stories. And her response was like, yes, but that's not a universal issue. Again, we wanted to um, address issues that we thought were the common experience among women who are ordained. And um, being kept out of church leadership in, in some way, whether or not it's through ordination or through um, hiring practices or through, uh, you know, um, maternal leave or, or whatever. These were, we, we wanted to address those issues, but we didn't want to, we didn't want to write a book that was about whether or not women should be ordained. 
Um, there's lots of books about that. There's lots of, of ways of thinking about that. We really wanted to give voice to this particular community that is ordained, that are young women in the church, um, and really speak to their experiences in the most in, in the way that using stories that we thought were uh, universal experiences for this particular group of women. So let me let me ask the the question now in a in sort of turn it back around on itself. Mm-hmm. About 50 years ago, your own denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, began affirming and accepting women into roles of ordained ministry. Mm-hmm. Have they solved all of the problems and, <laughs> and, yes. and overcome all the hurdles? Or, all the hurdles. Or are there, are, there still, are there still resistances and difficulties that women experience, even in a denomination that accepts uh, and affirms women in ministry? Absol- I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, of course. Like, I, there's, in, in the same way, I think that there is... Um, that there are issues in corporate America and there's mm-hmm. issues in the Senate and there's, there's any, you know, um, women are, are, um, no, obviously we, they, they've not figured everything out. I do think you, you, in some, in some ways you, we have again, set up almost kind of like a reverse issue, which I think you see, um, after, after the Great Recession, um, if you look at, for example, rates of, um, of graduate school attendance, right, women are outnumbering men. Um, you have churches now where there might be one, you know, senior pastor who is almost always still male, um, but then several associate pastors who are all female. Um, my church right now is like that. My church that I grew up at, at in Dallas is like that. Um, there are churches that are only pastored by women by you know by by two or three women serving in pastoral roles um is that good for the church maybe maybe not i mean you know the church did okay when it was only men pastoring churches i guess for a while but but so you do have um i think you have we have to figure out ways to lift up men in ministry as well um and uh, and find ways for to support them in, in, in their different ministerial roles, because we, we do have situations now where there's just a lot, a lot of women who, who are in, in leadership in churches. And, um, that's not necessarily good or bad, but it is something that I think we have to kind of, um, identify as we, you know, move forward in the church. You're listening to Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Stacy Smith, author of Bless Her Heart, Life as a Young Clergywoman. You can find us online at www.thingsnotseenradio.com, and you can get show updates and other information on Facebook at Things Not Seen Radio. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. I'm David Dalt. Each week we take time to talk in-depth about issues and interests from across the spectrum of belief and practice. We've been speaking today with the Reverend Stacy Smith. Along with her co-author, Ashley Ann Masters, Reverend Smith has written a practical guide for women in their first years of ministry. The book is Bless Her Heart, Life as a Young Clergywoman, weaving together insights from Scripture, along with personal anecdotes collected from women colleagues in several different denominations, Smith and Masters hope the book will serve to ease some of the rough transitions that might await a young woman entering pastoral work. Well, now that now that you're on the other side of this process and the book is out and you've collected these stories, how did your own assumptions or how have your own assumptions and expectations about the role of women in ministry 
how did those assumptions shift and change in the both in the course of writing the book and now that you the now that the book is out well i think it's when you when you're writing a book that's so closely related to your own identity mm-hmm. um as soon as your identity changes or shifts or you know you you live for another 6 months and you learn something else then you do kind of look back and think oh man i wish i'd known that about what i was talking about back then you know so um i i think that in in thinking about uh, what it means to be young in particular, uh, as as you get older, your association with identifying as young begins to change. And we, we hinted this at the book because, you know, I think ministry is something that after you do it for a, you do it for a little while and you learn a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so knowing full well that after a couple of years of ministry, you will probably not be the new kid anymore. Someone else will come in who is, you know, who's just out of seminary and just learning all of this stuff. And so you have to both continue living into your own identity, but also hopefully be a mentor to someone else who's coming, you know, uh, who's coming up as well. So um, as, as you sort of, uh, understand yourself differently, then I think you kind of look back and think, well, you know, um, maybe it's uh, maybe it's not quite like this, or maybe it should be different like that. I, you know, I, I think it just sort of depends on on your trajectory. So if I hear what you're saying, it part of part of the frustration perhaps is a book is a static thing, and sure, once yeah. you've once you've got it out there in print, you look back and you say. Wow, uh, now I have this new knowledge. I wish that I could put that back in the book. But I also hear you saying that part of what you're doing is a, a passing on of wisdom to, to those that are coming uh, to those that are coming after you, who are now fresh in their own pastoral careers and ministerial careers. And so, what I hear you saying is that there, even though there's the frustration that the book is there and it, it sort of can't be changed, there's a lot of personal opportunities that arise from the book that, yeah. that allow you to, to do this. Yeah. I th- and I think probably anyone who's, who publishes a book looks back six months later and says, man, I should have written that differently. <laughs> you know? So, um, but I do think yeah, when it's particularly tied to your identity, to this, to, to saying, this is what it's like to be me or to be in this role at this particular point in time, um, looking back on it, you think, well, it, it's a little bit different now than it was back then. Um, I think even the young clergywomen sort of identity and moniker, you know, is is in the process of evolution as well. Um, it's something that I think with the Young Clergywomen Project uh, sort of coming into existence, there was a real sense of this is a unique community. This is a specific community that is somehow different from the community that came before. And so we really want to talk about this identity right now. Um, and even as the organization grows, as the people who started it are now in different areas of their lives, you have to think about what it's like to, to yeah, to pass it on, to, uh, to hopefully teach the folks that are coming in now who are kind of running the, running the show, running the organization. Well, and I, I think about the, the intergenerational issues that you spoke of earlier, and not only the dating and matchmaking part, but then later when there are children being born and then children to raise, 
it's my impression that the expectations of male clergy and female clergy are vastly different on that front, even in progressive churches like the Peace I think USA. Th- I think that's definitely true. And I think you you will hear mothers mothers in ministry who who might be both from the same faith tradition from uh, you know working in a similar church of a similar theological mindset who have polar opposite ideas about how they should how they want to be mothers in the church um you know some who think that because they are uh because they are the church is their family that the children should be nurtured by that church family in very intentional ways that they want to bring their kids to church they want to bring their kids not not just to sunday but monday tuesday wednesday they want their kids to be around um and some women who uh, who don't want that at all, who really want to keep um, their their family life um, somewhat separate from their job so that the the job itself doesn't encroach on all of this time. You know, it's a it's a, a very difficult um, and delicate balance, I think, that um, particularly moms in ministry um, deal with. And not surprisingly, that's been uh, a big discussion, not on, not just on Fidelia's sisters, but the next book in this series, um, called any day, a beautiful change is, uh, sort of a, a, a pastor's reflection on being a mom and, and what that's like for her in the church. Well, so that, that brings up, uh, a, a recurring theme in, in bless her heart, and that has to do with the issue of self-care and setting reasonable boundaries and healthy boundaries in a, in a ministry. Now, have you found that it's especially difficult for women in ministry to set those sorts of limits? Or is this simply just an aspect of the job, whether you're male or female? Oh, that's a good question. I, you know, I think it's... Um I, I think it's probably a little... I think it depends on... Well, I think it's maybe both, you know. I mean... I, I, it's it's so hard to say because the statistics around clergy in general, clergy burnout and clergy health, and um, are, are just so atrocious. Um, you know, it's it's just a pastors deal a lot these days with isolation and depression and um, and overworkedness, sort of in general. So I don't really know that it's necessarily harder. Uh, for women, um, that they have a harder time, uh, you know, establishing boundaries. Um, I, I think that it's, I think that it's a, a, a problem for, um, pastors sort of in general, I think probably along most, it, it, the statistics would tell us that it's a problem for both men and women, both young and old who are serving churches. So. If you're just joining us, this is things not seen conversations about culture and faith. Our guest today, Stacy Smith, has written a practical guide for women in their first years of ministry called Bless Her Heart, Life as a Young Clergywoman. If you'd like more information about the book, please visit us online at thingsnotseenradio.com. Do you feel that it's proper or acceptable that some traditions and denominations still are holding back on this issue? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, is there any value to be found in a diversity within the wider church where some denominations ordain women and some do not? Or would you encourage all traditions and denominations to embrace and accept women in leadership and pastoral roles? I think that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. <laughs> I, think that, um, I think that it is certainly... Um, I certainly understand that there are uh, denominations 
people, leaders for whom this is a difficult question, um, that they look at scripture, that they look at experience, that they look at traditional roles and think, no way, this is too hard. Um, I've, I, I feel for their struggle and for their pain. Um, I, I do not think that excluding women from minist- from ordained ministry in the church should be accepted, uh, in 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 any case um but i but i do understand that um just because i think that um not everybody does uh, but i think that it is a question of justice i think it's a question of creation i think it's a question of um of opening ourselves to the work of the spirit in the world <laughs> and uh and i i do think that um that one day <laughs> we will all sit at a table together, men and women, young and old, and celebrate um, the calls of everybody. Um, and and I, that is true in the Presbyterian Church. But uh, and again, most sort of mainline denominations at this point uh, do ordain women, but they have done so at different kind of stages along the way. So if I'm hearing what you're saying, the the Presbyterian Church USA about 50 years ago, began ordaining women and welcoming women into into Mm -hmm. pastoral ministry. Mm -hmm. And there was a generation of women that took that challenge, Mm -hmm. and they were the first women in their seminary classes and sometimes the only women in their Mm -hmm. seminary classes. Mm -hmm. And they really blazed a trail. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a second generation, maybe I would imagine 50 years ago, so we're looking at the 70s and the the 80s, a second generation came in and built upon what those women had achieved. Mm -hmm. And now, if I hear you correctly, you're in almost a third generation, maybe even a fourth. Mm-hmm. Now it's not just trailblazing, but it's almost, uh, within the PCUSA at least, expected that women's gifts will be affirmed and that women will be welcomed into ministry. Am I, am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, it is. It is. It, it is. it is an expectation. Now, what it looks like on the ground is part of what we deal with in the book, <laughs> you know. As a woman who's been in a church that has ordained women openly for the last 50 years, um, I am privileged to not have the question of whether or not I'm allowed to be ordained in my church to be a huge issue. Um, It's not like that, obviously, in every church, Um, but in my denomination, the question of whether or not this is something that that my call is something that the rest of the church will affirm is not really an issue. Um, and I think that it has been uh, a bigger challenge for the women who came before us, for our mothers in the faith who were the only woman in their seminary class or the first woman to ever go before presbytery, uh, again, in, in my own tradition specifically. So, But because of that, because there's not this question mark next to whether or not I can or I can't, whether even if I'm, after, after you ask if I'm called, <laughs> um, you, I'm in the position and, and, and other colleagues are in the position to think about, okay, well, if that's not what it is, then, then what is it? What are the issues that, that we are dealing with as women? And how can we celebrate the fact that we are women and that we have a unique perspective in the church that has not been allowed in ordained ministry for a long, long time. So what are some of the specific needs that women have in their pastoral formation? I think that um, women 
well, it's it's you need to be open. I think to um, to the issues that you are dealing with in your own life <laughs> that just happened to be in the church as well. For example, the, the piece that I wrote, the first piece that I wrote, uh, the I Do Not Own a Robe piece, the question that I sort of asked was, most, most women's uh, clerical garments are either men's, they, they look just like a, a male robe, or they are uh, slightly tapered at the waist and flaring at the hips and hug the body just a little bit more. You know, well, what does that mean? <laughs> like, you know, that, that the woman's robe is just the man's robe, but fitted, you know, so you can see a little more of the body. Um, it, it, I, I don't have an answer to whether that's good or bad. It is what it is. It's just kind of what we wear. <laughs> these, that's kind of what you buy. Um, but I think these these uh, these questions of whether uh, women are fitting into the men's role in the church play out in some kind of funny ways when you get into the church, when you're actually serving a church day in and day out, getting up in front of people, wearing your red heels, and people are either gasping because it is just horrible or gasping because she looks awesome, <laughs> you know. Well, Stacy Smith, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Our guest, Stacy Smith, is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA and works currently as the supervisor for Christian formation and wellness at the Church Health Center here in Memphis, Tennessee. Along with Ashley Ann Masters, Smith is the co-author of Bless Her Heart, Life as a Young Clergywoman, published last year by the Chalice Press. The book addresses the unique issues that face young women as they enter the ministry. If you'd like more information about the book, please visit us online at thingsnotseenradio.com or on Facebook at thingsnotseenradio. Our Facebook page is a great place to learn about upcoming shows and upcoming guests, and our webpage is a great place to download additional audio that hasn't made it onto the broadcast and to find out more information about the books and the authors that we're speaking to. If you have trouble catching us on Sunday mornings, you can also sign up on the website for a weekly free podcast. That way you can listen to the show on your schedule, not on ours. After the break, Katie Scroggin reviews Stephen Sheehy's Islamophobia, the ideological campaign against Muslims. Welcome back. You're listening to Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. I'm David Dalt. Anti-Islamic sentiments are on the rise, both at home and abroad. Here in America, several states have moved to enact anti-Sharia laws that would forbid the use of Islamic legal precedents in U.S. courts. Around the nation, protests have sprung up as well to attempt to block the construction of several Islamic building projects, from the so-called Ground Zero Mosque in New York City to an actual mosque in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. In all these cases, critics of such moves have seen one common factor at work, Islamophobia. But just what is Islamophobia, and how are we to understand it as an aspect of our modern post-9-11 culture? Our producer, Katie Scroggin, takes a look at these issues with a review of the recent book by Stephen Sheehy, Islamophobia, The Ideological Campaign Against Muslims. A few years ago, a friend stopped at the hardware store to pick up a few things. All was going well until she handed the cashier her ID. Reading her Arabic last name, the man expressed surprise that he hadn't heard it on the news yet. When she asked if he was calling her a terrorist, he assured her he meant no harm by saying, No, hey, it's okay, I don't like Jews either. 
After speaking with the manager, my friend received apologies from him and the cashier. But the sense of hurt, of being stereotyped and suspected yet again, stayed with her. Muslims in the United States have increasingly undergone these and much more extreme sorts of stereotyping, bias, and discrimination. Although this brand of prejudice has been present since the country's founding, it has taken on a particular shape in the last 20 years or so. It is this more recent manifestation of what has come to be known as Islamophobia that Stephen Sheehy, Associate Professor of Arabic and Arab Culture at the University of South Carolina, discusses in Islamophobia, the ideological campaign against Muslims. Earlier forms of anti-Muslim sentiment tended to fall within what scholarly discourse calls Orientalism, a means of racially exoticizing non-Westerners or non-Europeans, partly in order to justify colonial policies. Sheehy states, however, that contemporary Islamophobia is not mainly a matter of race, hence where Arabs specifically might once have been portrayed in Hollywood and the media as ruthless and deceptive, Sheehy notes that Muslims of all races are now the targets of such depictions. The author emphasizes that Islamophobia isn't a political position that one party or affiliation adopts in opposition to another. Rather, he says, bias against and stereotyping of Muslims is deeply ingrained in U.S. culture and has only become more overt since the end of the Cold War. Here, contemporary Islamophobia provides a means of what the author calls deflection, a way for Americans to avoid facing up to the realities of what it means to be an imperial nation. Asked to believe that Muslims are suspicious in themselves, we are provided justification for heightened security measures and questionable approaches to civil rights. And so the rhetoric of spreading democracy often also includes the unspoken assumption that the U.S. knows what's best for populations whose cultural practices have kept them from accepting our more civilized ways. In doing so, our suspicions about Muslims keep us from considering the complex history of interaction between the U.S. and other nations, particularly those in the Middle East. For example, a picture of Muslims as volatile and angry glosses over the more disturbing aspects of U.S. intervention in the region, such as our support for dictators friendly to the West. It also helps mask the fact that so-called political Islam emerged during the Cold War, when the U.S. encouraged this form of religious culture to counterbalance Soviet influence in the Middle East. Sheehy asserts that these anti-Muslim deflections take root thanks to visible Washington insiders, such as Fareed Zakaria and Bernard Lewis. These journalists and scholars are joined by commentators from majority Muslim cultures, such as Ayan Hirsi Ali or Bridget Gabriel. But there is no conscious government or media conspiracy here, Sheehy states. Instead, these assumptions about Islam are the product of public voices and influential actors who reinforce one another's views, and who all aim, as he says, to keep U.S.-led global capitalism going strong. Since much of the Muslim world has functioned according to different economic and political assumptions than has the U.S., it provides an easy target for intervention. Sheehy also sees U.S.-Israeli relations as encouraging anti-Muslim attitudes, since it is largely unacceptable to question Israel's human rights record towards the mostly Muslim Palestinian population, those who engage in such questioning are considered hostile to U.S. interests. Moving beyond U.S.-Israeli relations, Sheehy says that legislation such as the Real ID Act and the Violent Radicalization and Homegrown Terrorism Prevention Act target civil disobedience and social justice activism. 
further mainstream stereotyping of Muslims in film, television, and a variety of news outlets lead to everyday acceptance of a range of prejudiced reactions, from off-the-cuff insults to racial profiling to preemptive persecutions. The author explicitly notes that his project is not a defense of Islam, and adds that, quote, the very idea that Islam needs to be defended is Islamophobic. Furthermore, Sheehy certainly cannot be accused of representing a so-called liberal media position. After all, he is just as unsparing in his criticism of the anti-Muslim assumptions of the Clinton and Obama administrations as he is of the Bush regimes. For example, the author notes how the current president's softer rhetoric merely points to a change in style of carrying out policy, not to a change in policy itself. Scholars might take issue with some of Sheehy's terms, such as hacks, when describing particular commentators and politicians. Some may also, in spite of the author's explicit denial of it, accuse the author of engaging in conspiracy thinking, especially when speaking about the self-reinforcing attitudes of Washington's interlocking think tanks. Among other things, the book provides a powerful example of mass media's influence upon public opinion a case study of how a particular mindset may take hold of a population. Were he to expand the book, I would ask Sheehy to comment upon public willingness to accept the Islamophobic messages he describes. What makes the average person ready to accept easy pronouncements on TV and in the mass media? Why is it so easy for so many to accept not only prejudice, but the inherent righteousness of American intervention? There are no easy answers to these questions. Even if we have them, combating the prejudices that lead to offensive comments and worse is an even steeper uphill battle. Sheehy has taken a valuable step towards finding some of those answers. He has provided many readers with an awareness of problems many of them may never have realized existed. That awareness is the first step in addressing those problems. Taking the initiative to delve into the workings of and motivations behind popular assumptions and media proclamations is the next. One hopes that Sheehy's readers will use his insights not only to investigate their own beliefs about Muslims, but the motivations and assumptions that lie behind policy agendas and news reporting as well. We can only hope that they'll go even further and actually work to eliminate the prejudices they find. Katie Scroggin is a translator and writer. Her recent essay, Toward a Hopeful Politics, Voslav Havel's Legacy of Responsible Commitment, was published in January 2012 online at theotherjournal.com. Katie is our senior producer and book reviewer. She lives in Austin, Texas. Things Not Seen is a production of Sandberg Media, LLC. We record the show at the studios of KWAM News Talk 990 in Memphis, Tennessee. AM 990 is not responsible for the views expressed on this program. Additional production for this week took place in Austin, Texas. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Jeff Krause engineers the show. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Alexander Badnock, and David Merrill. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio clips from many of our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. 
I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.